0: So we're continuing in our series, We're looking at the eight Beatitudes uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. What's the reason for the series? We want to review the Beatitudes, and I've come to call the Beatitudes, I forget where I saw it or read it, the Beautiful Attitudes. So you'll hear me say that when I say Beautiful Attitude, I'm saying Beatitudes. So we're reviewing these Beatitudes to, to awaken us afresh to a kingdom or or a government that spans way beyond our understanding of the space-time continuum. As I've shared before, when Jesus came and he established the kingdom on the earth, it's like he grabbed a hold of eternity and he dragged it into the present and staked it into the ground with the cross, the gospel. And so we have access to eternity now, which if we'd live very different lives if we really lived like we believe that we have access. To, to eternity, the presence, the power of God in our lives and in our world. So we, we need to understand that that's why that Jesus came for that. And so today we're going to consider Matthew 5 Uh, blessed are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, when we look through the Beatitudes, this is the scariest one. I don't know about you, but it's the scariest one for me. I don't feel qualified uh, to talk to you about purity in heart, but it's in, it's in there. So we're going to go there. And uh, it's pro- it probably doesn't mean what some of you think, or most of you even think it means, but blessed are the pure. That's the scariest one for me, because, because it's like, I, oh, I'm not very good at that. And we'll find out why, and I think hopefully we'll all be able to agree about that. So I've titled this, this sermon, Believing is Seeing. And it turns around our cultural idiom that says, seeing is believing, and I have a, a very cynical friend who's not a churchgoer, and, and he would say something like, um, only, only, uh, don't believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. Now, that's cynicism at its best right there, right? So, but what we're calling this is believing is seeing. And as I was thinking about this, it, it reminded me of, of a lyric from a U2 song that uh, I'm a U2 fan. And a U2 song, Walk On, one of my favorite U2 songs. And here's the lyric. You're packing a suitcase for a place none of us has been, a place that has to be believed to be seen. Uh, written by the great theologian Bono. And uh, uh, he's, not <laughs> he's not a bad theologian, actually. Um, there's some ego involved, but don't we all? But uh, anyway, it has to be believed in order to be seen. And so what we're talking about today is believing opens the door to seeing because of the passage that we're looking at uh, today. So here's an important question for you today. Do you want to encounter God in your day-to-day life? It's an easy yes for most of us, but, but some of us are afraid of God, and some of us don't re- want to keep our distance from God. But that's the question that I'm asking, and, and especially if you're one of those people that, that is afraid that he's going to ask you to do something you don't want to do or you're, you're afraid that if you, if you get real, you're just going to have a complete breakdown. But that's the question that we need to ask, that I'm wanting you to ask yourself. To, do you want to encounter God in your day-to-day life? And think about this for a minute. And, and um, uh, to see or encounter God is the ultimate goal of every single world religion, right? That's the ultimate goal. And usually seeing God is like the pinnacle, you start down here, how do we please and appease God? And then we work our way up to seeing God, encountering God. Or sometimes it maybe starts with seeing God, and then we work our way up. This is what you need to do to, to keep seeing God, uh, you know, to please and appease God. And so in the Beatitudes, though, it, it's not at one end or the other, is it? It's, it's kind of in the middle, a little past middle, but it's not at the pinnacle. And we need to ask ourselves why that is. It, it's not at the pinnacle. It's, it's kind of the middle. What's up with that? And with that, I'd like to take a look at our graphic that we've been using for our series. I think this is one of the best ways to understand what's going on in the Beatitude, that Jesus came, he established the kingdom of God on the earth, and then as to enter into the kingdom, which is this, it's, it's, it's salvation as well, that there's an emptying of ourselves that's, that's empowered by God's presence in our lives, and we start with being well, there's an emptying and then a filling, but look at that. So a poor in spirit, to acknowledge that you and I, left to ourselves, we don't have the resources to become the person that God's called us to be. And the way I explain it sometimes is my wife, Linda, my kids, my grandkids, they deserve more from me. So I want to keep growing, but I don't have enough resources in my own uh, strength and power to be what they need me to be. I need God. In my life, and and that's to be poor in spirit, to recognize we don't have the resources to grow to where we want to be, where God wants us to be. On our... And then there's a mourning that happens. Uh, the mourning is is once we see our tendency towards sin and selfishness, we're turned inward. Uh, there's a mourning that goes on. It's like gosh, I wish, I wish things were better. I wish. I wish I was more passionate about God and the things of God. And then there's also a mourning for for the degradation in our world, around the world. There's just, there's so many, there's some good things, but there's some really awful things. And as a country, we're going through a very difficult time, divisive and, and difficult. And there's a mourning for that and a crying out to God, both for our own tendency towards sinfulness and selfishness and for the world around us too. That's that's legit, that's a mourn. Meekness is when when we become humbled, I call it a humble or humbled learner. As as we are poor in spirit, as we begin to mourn, there's 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 a desire to know more of God and about God, and we become humble or humbled learners. And remember, disciple means learner. So it, it, this places us in a learning posture. And then the result of this is that there's this hunger and thirst for righteousness that wells up in the soul, this this longing for God, to the desire to love God and serve God, honor God, and walk with God. It begins to, at some level, hopefully begins to consume us and drive us to know God, to love God, to honor God. And then, in God, in his graciousness, he begins to fill us. A mercy, once we receive God's mercy, we begin to give mercy, first to ourselves and then to other people. Jeff Arthurs was with us last week. If you didn't, weren't here, Abel, you can go online and, and listen to that. Uh, he talked to us about mercy. And one of the things, I think it was Jeff who said, mercy is compassion in action. I mean, he said a lot more than that. But mercy is compassion in action. And then we move up to this, pure in heart, we shall see God. Then the next two, two Sundays, we're going to deal with peacemaking as opposed to peacekeeping, and then the great joy of persecution, which uh, if you're a Christian, you signed up for this, by the way. Just, I just hate to tell you, but uh, you did sign up for this, and, and God uses it for his glory and our good. So that, that takes us to where we are today, up to speed. Consider our passage, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God, Matthew 5.8. and I, what I'd like to do today is is ask and answer two pretty straightforward questions of the text, and so we'll look at those questions, and then uh, we'll look at them. We'll go back and look at them one at a time. First question: What does it mean to be pure in heart? Isn't uh, that's uh, I think it might be a little different than what you're thinking, but we'll see. The second one is: How will we see God? And then we are moving towards communion, and so I always like to let that be known. So sometimes we just need to prepare our heart for that. So let's go back and look at these one at a time. What does it mean to be pure in heart? And I think first we need to look at the word purity, and then we need to look at the word heart. Um, It's not rocket science, but let's just go back and, and do this. So what does it mean to be pure? I think as we begin this, it's helpful to consider what it's not saying. It's easy to think, to read that, and think that this verse is addressing sexuality and sensuality. Which unfortunately is the normal, I think, contemporary interpretation for this verse. But this, this, this is not what this word pure is referring to. It might have sexuality and, and sensuality uh, inference, but this is not what this word purity is trying to say to us. The Greek word for pure means without mixture, it means without pollutant, it means without alloy. So that's where it's headed with this, this word for purity. Here's a verse from Malachi that uh, I wish we had a lot more time to go into this. This is, this is awesome. Malachi 3.3, God will sit, sits as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. First of all, the Levites were the priests. And in the New Testament, we're all priests. So this is speaking to all of us. And so what is this verse saying? That God is a smelter. And, and how, does, how does a smelter work? What's the job of a smelter? Some of you know that better than others. But when you mine ore, um, you, you gather all the ore, put it in a big pot. And the, the last I heard, some of you might know more about this than me, but it takes about 2,000 degrees to melt silver or gold. And so if you think of it in a pot, and the mine silver or gold is in there. And then as you heat it up to 2,000 degrees, then the dross and impurities begin to bubble to the surface. And what the smelter does with a long uh, um, ladle-like instrument to scoop off the dross and impurities and put them in the pile. And so once they say that that ore, pure silver or gold, is pure, then the smelter can see his or her reflection in the ore. That's how you know when it's pure. So what's the implications of that? Is that, that God will, and if he hasn't, he will, but most of us, I think, can relate to this, God will heat up your life, right? And there's a purpose in that, and I want you to know that there's a reason for that. Uh, God will heat up your life, and the dross and impurities will bubble to the surface, and then that's when, when God, but I think it's, it's our part, the, the community that, that we're a part of, the, the, Bible, the church community that we're a part of, we scoop the dross and impurities off each other's pot when things have been heated up. You know, this week it might be you and some dross, some uh, impurities that bubble to the surface and you need some friends to come and pray for you. Uh, God has heated up your life in one way or another, and so you invest in inviting people to come and stand with you in that difficult time. Dross and impurities—we scoop it off. Uh, next week it might be your turn. The following week it might be my turn, where I need you to come and help me when when dross and impurity is is um, bubbling to the surface. And so that's how God uses those difficult times. Uh, for a reason. We can, when we go through difficult times, we can either shake our fist at God, why me? Or we can ask that question, what do you want to teach me in this difficult time, in this difficult moment? I think the second question is better, and I think it helps us get through those difficult times more quickly, too, when we ask the right question. Instead of reactive, we're responsive uh, to the things of God. And this is what I think that the verse is saying to us. Uh, Blessed are those who are single minded, whose eyes are are focused on god alone with an undivided heart that's where we're headed in this journey where our our focus is single that we want god more than we want anything else in our life that's what this verse is aiming us at Um, picture a conversation we've all had this conversation you're at a dinner party you're at a a a work meeting you're somewhere and um, you're talking to somebody and they're talking to you, but they're looking all around the room, too. Uh, their, their heart is divided. They're, they're talking to you, but they, they'd, they, they're looking for somebody they'd rather talk to than you. <laughs> right? That's what's going on. This is especially true um, at pastor's conferences, I'm, I'm afraid to say. You meet a guy, and, uh, and he's looking for the cooler guy that he can buddy up to in that and that sounds kind of cynical, right? I'm sorry to throw pastors under the bus, but we're a weird lot. That uh, thus. I try to be fully present, but I, I struggle sometimes too. But anyway, we've all been in that situation, and what that speaks of—that person that's looking around the room and talking—that speaks of a divided heart. And and that I think that describes all of us in the room at, at some level. Our hearts are divided, and our biggest challenge, I think, is is that if if we're honest about our hearts being divided. What Jesus is saying here, I think, is, is acknowledge and pay attention to the division that is in our hearts so that we can begin to focus on one thing. First, first and foremost, acknowledge your heart is divided. Uh, I, I have to acknowledge that my heart is divided, and I, I don't like it. I don't want it. I want it to be more singularly focused, but it is. That's where we start. We admit that that's where we are. Now, let's consider what the heart is. In the Bible, The heart is used as a metaphor. It's used for the metaphor of of the seat, the center, the most basic orientation of our lives. Our heart reflects our deepest commitments, where we place our ultimate trust. And, And here's the problem. The heart is deceitful, above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's, we've got to start there. And so here's what I would say. This, this verse and verses like this tend to offend people sometimes. The, the desperately wicked part. Here's what I want to say about that. You are not as desperately wicked as you could be. Well, maybe some of you are. I don't know. That's a joke. Come on. But when it says desperately wicked, what it, what it means that we are not as desperately wicked as we could be, but we are born with a heart that, that turns towards itself. We are selfish. We are prone to wander, as the hymn says. That's what it's trying to say. The heart is deceitful. We need to start there and acknowledge. I need to say, my heart is deceitful. My heart is divided. I want God, but there's all this other stuff. It tends to get in the way, and hopefully I'm speaking for you too. And then we read in Proverbs, Proverbs 4.23, and then, uh, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And so that's confusing for us, right? If it's wicked, why should we guard it? And here's what I would say to that. First of all, we acknowledge that it's it's wicked. It, It tends towards selfishness. So how do we... Why would we want to guard that? We guard what goes in and out of our heart. I'd like us to pay a little more attention. We, because it is deceitful, we acknowledge that. My heart's deceitful, God. Therefore, I want to guard what goes in and what goes out of my heart. Uh, one example of that might be, uh, this was in the 80s. Linda and I had been married about five years um, the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. What's that series called? Uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, that was the first one. Um, so this was the second one. And so Lynn and I went to the movie, and I, we probably had kids because we, we, we did that pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, we got away. Uh, Indiana Jones and the, and the Temple of Doom. So we might have been five, ten minutes into the movie. I look over, Linda is crying. Her heart is offended by what she's saying. Now, now that might be your favorite movie, and I, no judgment there. What I'm saying is that as her husband, I saw that we needed to guard what we watch, what we let into our world. We left that. She... she She's actually pure. <laughs> That's a, I don't know how to describe it. But she's, Jesus has been my lifeline, and Linda, her passion for purity is greater than mine sometimes. Don't tell her I said that. But, folks, let's be careful. When we go to a movie, if, if it's... If, if we're letting something into our heart that we shouldn't be, waste that $13, get up, walk out. TV, same thing. Uh, internet. There's websites we just shouldn't be on. And that's guarding our heart is, God, help me to make the difficult choice when I need to make the difficult choice and say no to that. Guard our heart, because it's deceitful to begin with. And so that's where these come from. The main struggle, this is Tim Keller talking, and I I hope this helps us to think about this. Theologian, pastor, New York City, uh, the main struggle is not between the heart and something else, but between forces that tear it in different directions. The great battle is in deciding to what your heart's greatest love, hope, and trust will be directed. That's what this verse is talking about, that we understand that our heart's deceitful, that our heart is divided, and that we want God to help us focus more distinctly on him and his purpose for our lives and our families. For for you parents, you probably know this. Your kids aren't going to do what you tell them. Did you know that? They're going to do what you do. And I hope that captures your heart. They're going to do what you do, not what you say what you do. And even what you do in secret, your kids will do that. I've seen it over and over and over again. And I don't want to say that to put a big heavy burden on you or to produce any kind of guilt. I just want to call it out and say, let's be honest. Let's be real. Let's be thoughtful about this. So at first glance, this is what Jesus is saying. To be pure in heart is to align our lives to focus first and foremost on God. That's what he's saying. But there's a deeper meaning here, and I think it holds true for all of the Beatitudes. I think it holds true for the Ten Commandments as well, uh, that all of these beautiful attitudes are beyond the reach of human willpower. Every single one of them. Ten Commandments too, Beatitudes 2 they're beyond the reach of our ability to do this in our own strength and power. This is what I hope that we are beginning to see. What's going on? God demands what's humanly impossible to do. Does that bother you? Kind of bothers me sometimes. He's demanding from us, whether you're talking Ten Commandments, whether you talk in the Beatitudes, he demands from us what we can't do, and the sooner we realize that, the better off we are. We are to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, "I can't, I can't do this," and then he takes you through this process. You acknowledge your poor in spirit, then you mourn, then you're humble learner then you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness so he's waiting for us to admit that we can't do it on our own that's the ten commandments galatians says that the 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 law was given as a tutor to show us that we can't do it same with the beatitudes hope that makes sense to you he's demanding something from you that you can't do and so that requires us to humble ourselves to admit that we can't do it. And then, by grace through faith, he comes. And I like to talk about, when I talk about the Holy Spirit, I like to talk about his empowering presence. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, to confront us with sin, his empowering presence. I wonder what our lives would look like if if we were more, twice as dependent on the Holy Spirit as we are now. If each one of us was twice as dependent on the Holy Spirit as, as you are now our lives would be pretty different to trust him, to empower us to do the things that we can't seem to do on our own. So here's the big idea for the sermon today. Uh, Purity of heart means that because of the gospel, what Christ has done, we are able to live our lives without deception, without hypocrisy, and our allegiance to God is increasingly undivided. And here's what I'd say. We need each other to do this. And again, let's be a church that, that owns up to our struggles and to our issues. It's, it's gotta be okay to not be okay here, to be real, where, where how you doing is not a greeting, it's an actual question. Uh, that that's who we would like to be. and The way I've said it before is where, where sinners are safe but sin is not. And that to, to trust one another enough that when dross and impurity is bubbling to the surface, we we grab somebody and say, "Hey, will you pray for me? I'm really struggling here." That's what I. That, that's that's where I hope we are, and I hope we continue to go in that direction. If this is not a persistent longing in your heart, this is not a growing desire in your heart, a singleness of focus, a longing to see God, a longing for a purity of heart. If that's not Currently, a part of your life, and here's what I'd say to you I don't think you're a Christian. If that's not at least in part a hunger and a desire that you currently possess, you might not be a Christian. Some of us think we're Christians because we filled out a card or raised our hand or went forward in a meeting. That does not make you a Christian, it does not make Kanye West a Christian. Uh, what makes us a Christian is actually surrendering our heart and our life to Jesus in an ongoing way. Uh, Eugene Peterson called it a long obedience in the same direction, where there's heart change and desire change and those kinds of things. So just throwing it out there. Okay, how do we see God? The fruit of this beautiful attitude is being fully present with God. That's what we want in the midst of a divided heart uh, it's an ability to see God. What does it mean to see God? Here's how, how one uh, well-regarded Greek scholar put it. To be admitted into the, the more immediate presence of God. Now, what this is not saying is that, we, you know, that the holy people get a backstage pass to God. You know, that's not what that's saying. We all have equal access to the presence of God. But, but, but when we see God, we see God more. We see God in things we didn't see God in before, like suffering. Is one of those things that we, oh, yeah, God is up to something. Uh, let's respond to that. So we see God in more places. And so um, uh, the fruit of this attitude, we're fully present to see God. So how do we see God? I want to give you five ways. One of those ways is a, like a meditation for, for our uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper because that's where we're moving. But how, how do we see God? There's five ways. Number one, we see him in the scriptures. Uh, if you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, and maybe you've read a verse, you know, one time, three times, five times, a hundred times, and then you read it one day, and you go, oh, I see, I see, you see something you didn't see before. Or you go, oh, that's what that's talking about. Is, is, has anybody ever had that happen? I've had it happen numerous times, but I'm, I assume you have too. That is seeing God in a new way. We find God in, in the Scriptures. I never saw that before. Oh, I get it. I see that in a new way. That's seeing God. Uh, in, in a whole new way. And so um, uh, the verse I like to use for that is, is Luke twenty four twenty seven, And this is the road to Emmaus. I think we've talked about this before, but you got two disciples and Jesus jo- joins them on this journey, seven mile uh, journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And he's talking to them. And then here's that verse 27. Uh, then, uh, then the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to these two disciples the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. So what he's saying to Him, and I said this before, this is the most important Bible study of all time. Jesus says, really, the whole Old Testament is about me. And we've talked about this in recent weeks, that when we read the Old Testament, it's really pointing to Jesus, that the Bible only tells one story from Genesis to Revelation. And so when we read the Old Testament, we're asking the question, how does this point to Jesus? How does this point to the gospel, and so that helps us to see God in scriptures, and so that's one of the best ways to see God. Uh, I had, um, I took a course, I can't remember if I shared this, in college, brand new believer, I was 20 years old, and they had a Bible as literature class, Uh, and so I took it, I'm like, this is awesome, I'm gonna get credits to read the Bible, Uh, and so I got in there, finding out that the professor was not a Christian. The professor didn't know Jesus. I was kind of disappointed, like, how can you know the Bible as well as you do and not know Jesus? But see, she could not see Jesus in the Scriptures. So every time we do, that's, that's a miracle at some level. That's a blessing to be able to read the Scripture and see Jesus in it. Don't know what happened to her. Number two, how do we see God? We see him in creation. We, we see the footprint and the hand of God in creation. And I'm just, just a one-off. We, we, we need the church, capital C Church. We need to participate in taking better care of creation, whether it's a natural cycle or it's man-made, human-made. I don't care where you are in the political spectrum. We need to take better care. That's all I'm saying. So I'll stop with that. Uh, Here's a passage, Romans 1.20. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that he has made. It's an amazing passage of scripture because it goes on to say this, Christian or not, you are without excuse because my presence is accessible to in creation. So what it says, even the non-Christians are without excuse for not seeing God in creation. It's pretty powerful. Uh, one day I flew from Tel Aviv, Israel, to New York City, New York City to Los Angeles. One of the most profound days of my life. It was mostly clear the whole way. So flying up over the Aegean Sea, then the the Swiss Alps, uh, central. Uh, Europe, and then the U.K. across the channel, and then over to Newfoundland and down into New York. A couple of hours, and then a flight from New York to Los Angeles. And window seats both ways. I was just profound. I was dumbstruck at how beautiful God's creation was. And then on that New York to L.A. leg window seat, we flew over the Grand Canyon. It's one thing to stand at the edge and look. It's another thing to look down. on the. And it's just like, wow. Wow, one of the most profound days of my life where I spent most of the day worshiping in gratitude for the beauty of God's creation. I'm sure you've had moments like that yourself. Number three, we see God in the difficult circumstances of life. And I've already spoken to that a lot, that God, one of my mentors said, God fixes a fix to fix us. And so some of those difficult circumstances are to get your attention. God doesn't cause evil in our lives. He uses... Difficult circumstances to teach us about ourselves and as I mentioned, we can either shake our fist, why me or we can ask that question What are you trying to teach me in this difficult circumstance the verse I love for this there's many but Job 42 5 um, And I've shared this before I'll keep sharing it because I love it so much after all this is the last chapter of uh, uh, the book of Job all his Unimaginable trials and tribulations, right? And he says, I, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. There's a reason for suffering and for difficult times. God wants to move from just hearing about God to seeing God, to knowing God. And so that's a part of it too. And then when all is said and done, we'll see God face to face. That's the, the upside. When all is said and done, we're going to see God. When you die, Pass from this life to the next. You're, the first person you're going to see is Jesus. And he has a body like ours, by the way. He's not, he didn't revert back to spirit. He still got his resurrection body. And when we see him, in that split second, you will know 10,000 times more joy than all the accumulated joys of your whole life if you're a believer. When you see him, the joy will be unimaginable. And guess what? It will last for eternity. Here's the verse that I like for this one, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, right? But then, face to face, now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He loves everything about you, every single thing about you, and he loves you. He knows the truth about you and me, and he still loves us. When we were at at our worst, I'll turn it around and put it on. When you were at your worst, he died for you. He loved you and died for you. Isn't that awesome? And then as we move towards communion today, we see Jesus, when we come together, with other Jesus followers, and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Again, I'm reminded on the, about the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, Luke 24. Two disciples encountered Jesus. They didn't recognize him because they were so caught up in their circumstances. They had hoped for this geopolitical kingdom, and he died in confusion, resurrected, what? what's going on here? And they're walking home, Emmaus. So when Jesus came alongside, because of the anxiety in their life and everything else, they didn't recognize him. Might be more to it than that, but that's something. And then they invited him in for dinner. Remember that part if you've read through Luke 24 and verses 30 to 31? It says, when he, reclined, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them, and then their eyes opened, and they recognized him. So this isn't just a ritual, is it? It's not a superstitious ritual. It's something that when we come to the table, we have the potential of seeing Jesus in a way we've never seen him before. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But to finish this up, uh, as we surrender to the cleansing grace and mercy of God, along with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, the purer our heart will become. We're on this journey towards a pure heart. And I want us to go in that direction. Last quote that I'll put up here for you, uh, 18th century uh, theologian, B.C. Caffin. The pure in heart see the mysteries of grace, the mysteries of love and holiness, which are hidden from the eyes of the unbeliever those who can't see so expect to see God expect to see him in, in his in his word and in creation and in our gathering and in your suffering God is there he's with you uh, and, and he wants us to see him and then as we close this out and move towards communion as I thought this week about my bible as literature a college professor I was reminded of a really thought-provoking uh, story in William Barclay's commentary on the New Testament he tells about this dinner party in 19th century London, England, and the host had asked everybody to come, prepared to give a recital or a reading after the meal. And this famous London stage actor was invited. Uh, with all his training, with all his experience, he stood up and he elegantly, eloquently recited the 23rd Psalm The Lord is my shepherd goes on. And when he finished, he sat down to this thunderous applause around the table. Everybody was just so impressed. Now, unfortunately, the next guy had also chosen Psalm 23 to recite. And he, he wasn't a good speaker. He did not have professional training. And so he got up and he started out, same Psalm. And he didn't have polish. There were some Snickers around the table Uh, and, And Barclay writes in his commentary that by the time the man had finished, a stillness had fallen around the table. And that stillness was far more profound than any applause. And as that second guy sat down, the actor turned and said to him, I know the psalm, but you know the shepherd. Isn't that what you want? We don't want to just know the psalm. We want to know the shepherd.